Good morning, everybody. Uh, the passage today is First uh, Peter three, um, verse thirteen through eighteen. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, say you will be blessed. Have no fear of, of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a, a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in, in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the unrighteousness, that he might bring us to to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Good morning. I, I want to join um, Jesus in just thanking the worship team again this morning. It so often happens, at least when I've been called upon to preach, I feel like the sermon was already preached through song. Uh, in so many ways. So Caleb, thank you for orchestrating that set. I, I sense the leading of the Holy Spirit on the songs that you chose this morning, and it helped to affirm in me the things that I hope will come clear to you as I have the privilege once again to stand before you and, and uh, teach uh, the Word of God. Uh, it's an honor um, every time I have an opportunity to do this. This is a week when um, I, I woke up sadly singing uh, Barry Manilow's song all by myself, uh, realizing this is, this is a one of those rare moments when I'm the only elder in the house, but that's, and, and I was singing that song and then the Lord kind of rebuked me and said, you know what? You're surrounded by a host of the whole church and we have such wonderful leaders here. The elders are not the only part of the leadership team, uh, but Pastor Mark is making his way back from Moldova. Mike is up in Minneapolis this morning. Um, I don't know where the others are at, but everybody's scattered to the wind and I found myself unlocking the church this morning and, and, uh, making coffee and nobody showed up, but that's okay. But y'all came, so I appreciate that. Um, everybody's here, and it's all good, and I'm just grateful, like I said, anytime I can, I can come in. This is a humbling, it's a humbling book to interact with. Um, it's humbling for me, um, just because I, I think of suffering. Um, the central, the central theme of First Peter is suffering and endurance in the face of persecution. And I look out uh, to you guys, and, and I know some of you suffer greatly. Uh, you're in the middle of, of affliction. You're in the middle of adversity. You're going through things right now in your life um, where you are on your knees crying out to God. And every day there, there's anguish. There's, there's a hurting soul. There's struggle and things that you're dealing with. That's a part of life. And it's not um, everybody's journey through suffering is different. Uh, and so I don't take that for granted this morning as I share this. I'm mindful of the fact that that this is why we gather together as a church. We are a church body. When one hurts, we all hurt. And we're there to support one another as we think of uh, of walking in community as believers. 
through suffering. And, and even though our suffering may not be the result of persecution, it may be, uh, certainly not as it was in the time that this letter was written. Uh, it's certainly uh, affliction and it's certainly suffering that takes place in the church. We can't escape it. So with that, I just want to set the backdrop this morning for what we're talking about. The letter was written from Peter in the mid-60s AD. This was a time when Nero likely was still emperor of Rome, and, and the destruction of Jerusalem was still a few years away in 70 AD. And so trouble was coming. You know, Paul saw the writing on the wall, the persecution had started, and uh, there was fear, and, and there was unsettledness, and the church was being called to go through some things in its, in its uh, infant, in infancy you know, that were going to be really difficult. For the next three centuries, Christians would be mercilessly persecuted under Rome. They would be made public spectacles in gruesome one-sided death matches as they faced off against fully trained and armed Roman gladiators or wild animals such as lions, tigers, and bears in the Roman Colosseum. Uh, And that would go on for hundreds of years. The stakes were high. And publicly expressing your faith in Jesus Christ could lead to dispossession of land, it could lead to dispossession of wealth, imprisonment, and in many cases then, death and martyrdom. The stakes were high. And while the context of 1 Peter is on suffering brought about specifically through persecution, extreme persecution in this case, I would suggest that the principles, the encouragements that he brings in his letter can be applied to us today uh, through all forms of suffering, all forms of affliction that we experience as we serve Christ together uh, in community. And so I titled this sermon, Persecuted not forsaken is probably pretty obvious where that title came from, but I was inspired by two verses in Scripture that are very familiar passages. First one was, uh, was Psalm 20, 25, where the psalmist wrote this. He said, I've been young and now I am old. I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging bread. This is David, um, obviously at the end of his life because he says, now I'm old. Um, and he's reflecting back, right, on the span of his years of life. And he says he's never witnessed a righteous person, someone who's lived faithfully and with integrity, forsaken or abandoned by God. And the imagery of children begging for bread indicates that neither the righteous or their descendants were ever left in a state of extreme poverty or uh, deprivation. God cares uh, for the needs of his people. And then the second um, verse that kind of inspired the title was this one from 2 Corinthians, a longer passage, again, very familiar where Paul writes this, he says, but we have treasures, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. And I I think again, too, of of David and Paul. I, I consider the source These are two men that knew what it meant to suffer. They knew what it meant to be pursued and persecuted. They knew what it meant to be abandoned, um, at least by friends uh, and people who they were close to. They knew this, and they wrote this from a position of authority that even though we're crushed, even though we are broken, even though we are perplexed and we're driven to despair, that God is still our God, and that he is with us. So persecution in the broader sense, any human suffering that we face directly or indirectly in this life, it's to be expected. Um, From an eternal perspective, ultimately it results in God's blessings. At first glance, this may sound like a conflict. I'm I'm thinking, flashing back to, I'm looking at Jeremy Aiken, who gave us a great presentation a week ago, and you talked about the difference between a conflict in Scripture, something that's unresolvable, uh, and a paradox, 
And, and this is a paradox. If you think about uh, this passage and all that Peter's writing, he's basically saying, listen, you're going to go through suffering. You're going to go through hard stuff. Stephen was martyred. He was put to death. Peter would be martyred. He would be put to death. And yet the scripture tells us this morning that who is there to harm you? That sounds like a conflict. How can, you know, death sounds pretty painful. It sounds like it's harmful. But there's an eternal perspective here um, that's at work. And it's not a conflict. It's a paradox as Jeremy taught us last week, a seemingly contradictory statement that is still true, and it can be resolved through careful exposition of God's word, which I hope I'm successful doing this morning. So as I laid the foundation, I wanted to cover three assumptions before I get into the three main points this morning. Hopefully it won't be too long-winded, but we've been covering um, attributes of God um, and, and the Bible in the past couple of weeks in theology class, and some of this came from that. But the first assumption, and, and by assumption, I just simply means this is something as we're interacting with the text in First Peter, these are just things that Peter assumes his audience knows. These are things that Peter assumes his audience believes, and these are things that we believe. We know these to be true. And the first one is, uh, is this. We cannot escape trials and tribulations in life. They're coming. Trouble is coming. And there's nothing we can really do as humans to, um, to keep bad things from happening to us in this life. I heard a pastor recently say that our theology as Christians is not a theology of avoidance, but rather of laying down and giving up our lives for Christ. We cannot, through human means alone, prevent all suffering, but to this end, as Peter's instructed, we also should not recklessly stir up trouble through sinful or godless behavior that puts ammunition in the hands of our enemies and makes it easier for them to cause us to suffer. So there's a balance there. Um, but we're called to rejoice and we're called to see suffering as something that's gracious, something that carries with it a blessing when we are called to endure it when we are doing good and living righteously before God and men. So a couple of verses here, 1 Peter 4, 12, 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange has happened to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Don't be surprised when trials and tribulations come. They will come. Second Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you as a blessing that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Assumption number two, God is sovereign over all things, good and bad. And this again, too, may seem a little bit like a conflict, but Scripture's clear on this point throughout the Old and the New Testament. As we learned recently, uh, reading about the incommunicable attributes of God on the attribute of God's sovereignty, the author of the book that we're using says this, God is totally, supremely, and preeminently over all creation. There is not a person or a thing that has escaped his control and his foreknown plan. There's a plan behind everything, even though that plan is often veiled to us from under heaven, from where we sit. We don't always see the end. Very often, we just see the next step if we're fortunate, right? And sometimes we don't see that. God sees it all, and he's got a divine plan. He's got a purpose. He's got a plan for us, and he is totally in control. Many have considered an age-old philosophical question, why do bad things happen to good people? You guys ever asked that question? A corollary to that is, why is there suffering in the world? I'm not here to answer that question this morning. Uh, there are entire books written on that subject that probably do a better job than what I could do, but I will point us to 
uh, Ecclesiastes and ask you to turn there with me. Turn to chapter 7. I want you to read this with me. because I think this is a verse that's really helped me to understand, again, God's sovereignty over all things. The writer of Ecclesiastes reminds us that all things good and evil, both good and evil, and things that bring us joy and the crushing and most sorrowful events in life are from God and under his sovereign rule and control. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 13 through 14 says this, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Flip forward a couple of chapters to chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 of Ecclesiastes. The writer continues his argument. He says, but all of this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. It's very easy for us to credit God and to acknowledge God and to praise him when things are going well, when we are having those joyful moments, um, news of a new grandchild, right? Um, those are wonderful, wonderful things and moments in life, one that Beth and I hope that we will one day get to experience ourselves for our children who might be listening. It's easy to celebrate those good moments. It's a little harder when we're being pressed, when we're being broken, when we're being crushed. And to know that that too is the hand of God, that God's hand is in that because there's a purpose. There's a divine purpose and there's an immediate purpose because we are conformed to his image through suffering. It is part of the sanctifying process for God. So we need to be able to worship him um, and, and ought to do so freely and to rejoice and to praise him in both the day of prosperity and in the day of adversity. And I wanted to look at Job's example this morning. This is the obvious like go-to passage for someone who suffers, right? When we think of Job, one of the greatest examples of righteous suffering uh, is found in his life. His journey through suffering and ultimately prevailing in it or through it um, were both divinely orchestrated by the Lord. Job 1.8, this is sort of the beginning of the journey, right? There is this assembly in heaven and Satan is there uh, in the audience before the Lord. And it's the Lord who initiates the conversation. He says this, he says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him in all the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Right? And Satan is like, you know, just full of delight at this moment. You know, give me your best. Show me the best guy in your, in, on your team, and I will show, I'll show you what he's really made of. You know, what if you remove your protection? What if you take down that hedge of protection that you have over him and you give him to me for a day? I'll crush him, and before the day is done, he'll curse you. Well, we know that Job was crushed. He lost his wealth. He lost his possessions to invading forces. All of his business holdings, his sheep, his cattle, camels, donkeys, the servants who were tending his flocks were killed, and he was left financially in ruins. He lost his family, right? Job lost his sons and daughters, killed tragically when a great wind struck their house and it collapsed upon them. He experienced physical affliction, immense suffering from what the Bible described as loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he lost his friends in his social standing, right? Um, yeah, he had the three friends who were with him, but they didn't always give him very good counsel. He was falsely accused of suffering because of his sin. You know, you're a sinner. Just, you know, repent. You know, this is all, all this bad stuff's happening to you because in, in, invariably you're just a bad person. You've offended God. That's why all this stuff has happened. 
when in fact, Job was singled out by God because of his righteousness, and his afflictions were a test of his faith and perseverance orchestrated by God himself to demonstrate his glory and what he could do through this man named Job. Even Job's wife joined the chorus of his accuser, saying, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. To which Job replied, Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? So as we see from the text, not all persecution is a direct act of human oppression. Satan conspired against Job, used a human army, natural disaster, and physical afflictions right, to, uh, to torment Job. Confident that when he crushed Job, Job would acquiesce and he would curse God. Job was brought down into a deep pit of despair, but when the time of testing had come to an end, God vindicated him, restored his wealth and his reputation, blessed him with seven sons and three daughters, and he added 140 years to his life. I think of the end of the story uh, where it's written in Job 42. It says, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers, all his sisters, and all who had known him before, and they ate bread with him in his house, relationships restored. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. So assumption two, God is sovereign over all things, good and bad. It's clear in Scripture, and I could give you many, many more examples on that point. Assumption number three. can't remember which song we sing, Caleb, but the one where we sing over and over again. God is for us. God is for us. Waymaker, perhaps? Is it that one? He's for us. God is for us. I don't think we can say that enough. When you're having a tough day, when you're having a tough moment, life is pressing in on you. Remember that God is is for you. Romans 8, 28, and you can turn to chapter 8 if you want because this is a wonderful passage. I'm going to skip through some of the verses, but beginning in Romans 8, 28, Paul writes this. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. God uses all situations, whether easy to endure or extremely difficult, painful or challenging for the ultimate benefit and welfare of his people, to those who have a loving and faithful relationship with him. He goes on to write in verses 31 to 32 of chapter 8 in Romans, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God is on the side of his children, and he always will be. His protection is absolute. No one, nothing can ultimately prevail against us as his children and as those who have put him... um, accepted him in their life as their Lord and Savior. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or fame, uh, famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. God is for us. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and to give you a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. This message was given to the exiles, right? They were going to be in captivity for 70 years. Their persecution um, was going to be a long road, right? And some of them would die in captivity and not return. But God's promise was, listen, in 70 years, I'm going to come back to you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to bring you back to the promised land and I'm going to renew my relationship with you. And God had a plan in place to use that time of captivity. But his plan for them was good. 
So now to the main points of the sermon. You waited a long time for this, so the three main points for you note-takers out there. Point number one, God's protection and blessing related to today's text. Uh, Second point, a Christian response to suffering. And third point, Christ, our example. So God's protection and God's blessing. Uh, The passage this morning that Jesus read, it begins with a promise or an assurance and a blessing, right? The promise is a rhetorical question. Who is there to harm you? The obvious answer is what, saints? This is where you get interactive. Who is there to harm you? No one. I mean, it's, it's a rhetorical question. You know, this is the, the obvious is being stated in the question. There's no one out there. There's nothing that can harm you, as we've already read. But there's also a condition if, right, you are zealous for what is good. This is a conditional statement. It doesn't mean that harm won't happen. But if you are a believer in Christ, if you are serving God with faithfulness and integrity, you belong to him. There's nothing in this life that can harm you. Enemies of the faith can kill you. Okay, They can destroy your flesh as they destroyed Jesus' flesh on the cross. They didn't destroy Jesus any more than, than death in this life will destroy us. God's protection is, is guaranteed for those who follow him. Psalm 34, 7 through 8 puts it this way. It says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So again, fearing the Lord, not out of um, being afraid of God, but fearing him in holy reverence and taking refuge in him, seeking him because we know that we need him and that he is our protector. He is our refuge in times of trouble. So it's important to note that our righteousness, uh, because a lot of what Peter's talking about is doing the right thing, doing good, right? Which means that we maintain a righteous example in a fallen world, that we live differently from those who are not Christian, And so evidence of your salvation, evidence of your sanctification should be borne out in the way that you live your life before men and women in this world, in in the job market, the way you do your job, the way that you serve others, your relationship with your husband, with your wife, with your children. And we don't all do it perfectly, but righteousness, our ability uh, to be righteous and to endure suffering for righteousness sake does not mean that we live perfectly doesn't mean that we don't ever have fear. It doesn't mean that we're never without anguish. It doesn't mean that we're without doubt or sin. If this were the case, we would all be disqualified. We would all fail at some point. Romans makes it clear, none of us is righteous, no, not one. The prophet Isaiah put it this way. He said, all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment or filthy rags. It's a pretty poignant example. Ecclesiastes, again, 7.20 says this. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So listen, don't put pressure on yourself to be perfected in this life. You're never going to be perfect. We're never going to be perfect. We're going to fall. We're going to practice being good. We're going to practice being God's righteous ambassadors in the earth. And we're going to succeed, but sometimes we're going to fail. You know, And the Lord will pick us up in those moments, dust us off. Uh, there's grace and there's forgiveness. So how are we to be zealous for what is good? The Bible makes it clear, since none of us is righteous, that it is only by God's grace that we can do good. We are justified through faith in Jesus alone, and our righteousness is a gift from God. It's a gift from God uh, imputed to anyone who accepts him as their, their Lord and Savior. For Christians, it is possible by God's help through the transformative power of the Holy Spirit, as we sang this morning, as uh, Jeremy even talked this morning in the study, 
and our partnership through sanctification, it's possible, not only possible, it's probable, if we read the word, we embrace what God is doing in our lives, that we can do good, that we can learn to do good, that we can become better at doing good. We don't need to stay where we're at. God can perfect his character and the graces that we need to be able to be um, to be good and to have a good witness in the community and to receive grace and forgiveness when we fail. So throughout his letter, Peter encourages believers to do good and to live righteously, and that in doing so, we will remain under the umbrella of God's sovereign protection. Does this mean that by doing good, nothing bad will ever happen to us? I think we've already covered that, but um, or that by doing good, we can escape suffering? And the answer again is no, at least not necessarily, as Peter immediately follows up saying, if you should suffer for righteousness' sakes, you will be blessed. Some are called to the ultimate price. Some are called to martyrdom. Even in our world today, while we don't see that in the United States, this land of great privilege and uh, uh, you know, religious freedom, which I know is under attack, it's always under assault. But there are places in the world where those freedoms don't exist and where there are Christians being persecuted even today for their faith, even to the point of being put to death. And so we know that that's still a present reality, even though it may not be our present reality. By doing good, we're assured as followers of Christ that any suffering we are called on to endure will be redemptive. It will ultimately result in God's blessing. Whether we're able to recognize the blessing immediately or even in our lifetime is irrelevant. God's eternal blessing on those who suffer for righteousness' sake is assured. And I put this in here on purpose. Whether we are able to recognize the blessing immediately or even in our lifetime, it's irrelevant. Sometimes we can't always perceive the blessing of God in this life. Part of the blessing will come later. We're storing up treasure in heaven. We will be receiving a reward when we cross over, right? But yet there's also a blessing in this life, and at times we can perceive it. We can see growth. We can see God doing a work in our hearts. I've, I refer to Diane a lot who talks and thanks God for her cancer. There were things that God did in her life through cancer that needed to be accomplished, needed to be done, you know? I went through a battle with cancer this last year, and, and I'm still processing, still learning, I think, the things that God wants to teach me through that, you know, and by his grace, um, you know, he's brought me through it, and, and I hope I never get cancer again, but if I do, praise God, may he give me the same peace and the same, uh, same trust and the same level of faithfulness that he gave me uh, by his grace to be able to walk through that, having never done so, but the example of Carlene and others who have gone through much more extreme variations of that disease and those who have been afflicted, uh, afflicted even with more serious illnesses and so forth, I see that and I understand that and that gives me pause to know that even my minor afflictions, um, you know, God's grace is sufficient to help me through those. So some of you might recognize this little picture of the screenshot in the lower left-hand corner if you're a C.S. Lewis and Articles fan. Uh, I've always remembered the scene where Mr. Beaver and Mrs. Beaver try to prepare Susan for her first encounter with Aslan, meeting him in person, right? Kind of a scary thing, scary proposition. Uh, Aslan, of course, in the fictional um, classic series is the King of Narnia, the fictional representation of Jesus Christ in the seven-book series, right? He is the salvific, uh, salvific character that... C.S. Lewis created. So I won't try to impersonate a beaver, but if you can just you know, pretend that I'm Mr. Beaver and Mrs. Beaver talking to Susan. I'll mess it up if I try to actually do it, but I used to do it when I read it to my kids. But Mr. Beaver tells Susan this, says, he is the king, referring to Aslan. He's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. 
Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Susan asks, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver responds, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. It's Lucy, not Susan. My apologies. Getting the names mixed up. He is not safe. He is, he is good. So we can look to recently our study in Genesis, right, where Genesis built on the story of Joseph near the end. And we can ask Joseph one day, how safe did you feel after being thrown into a pit by ten jealous brothers? In time, Joseph would come to understand that the misery he endured during years of unjust treatment and adversity were purposely designed by God for some greater good and divine purpose. Before his death and after Jacob's death, he would comfort his brothers who lived in fear that somehow he would renege on his promise to protect them, right? Well, Joseph brings a comforting word to his brothers to allay their fears with these words. He says, listen, as for you, you meant evil, harm against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We can look to the book of Acts, to the example of Stephen in chapter 8. When we get to heaven, we can ask Stephen, the first Christian martyr recorded in the book of Acts, whether following Jesus was safe. Stephen is described by Luke as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit and full of grace and power, doing great signs and wonders among the people. Luke writes this. He says that Stephen's adversaries in the synagogue could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They stirred up opposition against him. They seized him. They brought him before a religious council. They set up false witnesses against him to accuse him of blasphemous assaults against Moses, God, and the law. And in response to his impassioned testimony, because he was allowed to speak, and boy, what a speech he gave. In response to that, Luke tells us that the crowd became enraged. They even ground their teeth at him. I don't know what that's like. Before stoning him to death. But Stephen stood firm in his faith to the end and was blessed in suffering for righteousness sake. We're told that being full of the Holy Spirit in the moments before his death that he gazed into heaven, he saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen's death was followed by what Luke would describe as a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, which resulted in a scattering of the disciples who went about preaching the word. Stephen's death was the catalyst for the spread of the gospel beyond Jerusalem. It resulted in great revival, but there was a cost to following Jesus, and for those in the way, it was anything but safe. But God's steadfast love and goodness is constant and endures despite our suffering and the things that he might call us to. Other examples, during the Exodus, God protected the Israelites from being captured by parting the Red Sea, allowing them to cross safely to the other side, then closing it down to drown out Pharaoh's armies. He gave Esther favor in the king's court. Remember that? She put her life at risk to go into the king's court unannounced, uninvited, because she was going to stand in the gap for, for the Jewish people to prevent their annihilation. And she succeeded because God gave her favor. He protected Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. He delivered David countless times from the hand of Saul. He sent an angel to Peter during his imprisonment to release the chains and set him free. He repeatedly rescued Paul through miraculous interventions and divine guidance. God may not be safe, but he is good and he zealously protects his children. That leads us to the second point. 
What's our response to suffering as Christians? And there's lots of things we can say, but these are Peter's three encouragements that he gives us. Uh, First of all is one that we hear repeated often in Scripture. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. There's always going to be people who will oppose us. Sometimes it's just us. Sometimes they just don't like us. And sometimes we bring that about because maybe we're not always the nicest person. You know, there have been times in my life early on, especially when I was, you know, probably brought trouble upon myself because it was my own fault. And that's the very thing Peter's trying to encourage us not to do. Don't bring it on yourself. But have no fear of them, nor be troubled. If you're living rightly before the Lord, God is going to be with you. Isaiah 41, 8 through 10 says this, beautiful, sweet Words from Isaiah here. He says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I look from the ends of the earth and called from its furthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you, and I have not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I read this week that the Bible includes some form of the phrase fear not 365 times in the Bible from beginning to end. Have you guys ever heard that? And one for each day of the year. One for each day of the year. So there should not be a day where we're not reminding ourselves. Fear not. Do not fear. Have no fear. Um, God is with us. Fear is a natural human response to trouble and distress, and the admonition to not be afraid is meant as a reminder and an encouragement. It's never meant as a rebuke. God doesn't rebuke us when we have moments of fear. Uh, He gently lifts us up, reminds us that he is with us. Jesus, knowing the distress that his death and his departure would cause his disciples, he left them with the promise of the Holy Spirit toward the end of his earthly ministry. And he left them this blessing from John 14, 27, which for me was a a key verse when I was going through cancer. Um, I remember the second, uh, Beth, maybe not the second, but the moment when Beth and I were meeting with the um, surgeon did my colonoscopy and you know, Beth was getting ready to pick me up and take me home and all of a sudden I knew something was wrong because they said, eh, we better call your wife in. And so they uh, send her another message, say, don't pick your husband up, actually come on in, sit down, shows me the little pictures, right? I can't tell what the pictures mean. You got this thing inside of you and it needs to come out. You know, it's not good, it's cancer. But he also left us with a word of hope because uh, he had seen that before and he was trying to kind of calm our fears and give us our assurance. But from that very moment, I can only explain it as God's divine um, adornment on that situation of his perfect peace. And it was this peace that I felt. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives to you do I give it. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I just just camped out in that word for for months, you know, and, and, um, and God is faithful through that. And I hope if I ever experience that again or something worse, that that same peace will be what characterizes my faith in that moment. I hope so. I pray for that. Um, that I'll not let fear overwhelm me to the point where I lose my faith. You know, some people, fear can, can knock them off their game. It can get them to be angry at God, which also is a natural human emotion, okay? Um, if you are able to press through that and, and, and restore your relationship. But if you spend the rest of your life in bitterness or anger toward God because of something you think he did or didn't do, That's certainly not the place of peace that God wants us to be in. All right. 
Second piece of advice uh, that he gives is honor Christ, the Lord is holy. In Psalm 22, and you guys can turn to this if you want, we'll be in Psalm 22 for this section. Um, it's a beautiful passage. It's one, again, that's very familiar to you. But in Psalm 22, David is in anguish. It begins in the very first verse with the prophetic messianic utterance that's familiar to you. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For telling the words of Jesus that Jesus would cry out from the cross as he suffered unimaginable physical and spiritual torment. David continues with this. Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. So anyone who has experienced human suffering can identify with David at this moment. The anguish and the distress of the moment can seem overwhelming. Our faith can wobble on the brink of unbelief. Our raw emotions may characterize our weakened state of mind. And we may feel in that moment utterly alone, abandoned, and without hope. Guys, that's not unnatural, okay? But what do we do from that moment? How do we proceed out of that place? How do we get to a better place? Because if that's where we camp out and we never move beyond that, then things, you know, are, are not good. David goes on. Look at verse 3. It doesn't take him long. He flips the script. And he shifts his focus upward to God in remembrance of God's past faithfulness. And he says this, right after saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says this, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and they were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. One of the songs, I hope I can pull this up, that Caleb sang this morning that I copied really quick was that deep calls unto deep and the, and the words just caught my attention this morning. Deep calls unto deep, wave, waves of unbelief, breakers crash and bring me falling to my knees. It goes on and on and on. Where is my God? My salvation is in you and you alone. You know, if it stopped there, where is my God? And it didn't go on. Where would our hope be? You know, but the psalmist in Psalm 42 captures that sentiment. You know, the raw emotion, guys, it's okay to feel abandoned. It's okay to feel momentarily like you're alone in the moment of your crisis. I don't think God holds that against us. But will we move past that? Will we see his glory in our tribulation? Will we see his hand on our lives? He goes on with a third point here, and we're still in Psalm 22, to the third encouragement. Testify of the hope that is in you. And these are anecdotes, guys, for how to how to handle suffering, how to handle tribulation. So go ahead in Psalm 22, a little further to verses 22 through 27. So now David is pointing outward. He starts by pointing inward. My God, my God, where have you forsaken me? Then he moves upward to the Lord. Um, you are holy. You are perfect in your holiness. And now he's pointing outward to the congregation. And he's saying this, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. And you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. From inner anguish to praise and honor to a holy God, to a testimony, to a people that need to be encouraged 
and built up in their afflictions. Well, the last point is Christ is our example. Peter points us back to the cross, points us to our Savior, um, because he modeled everything. Jesus was the perfect exemplar of all that we're being asked and called to do. I don't know if we'll be called to be a martyr. You know, that script hasn't been revealed yet to us. God's got a plan. Um, certainly that is happening today in, in some places, but trouble will come. Isaiah in chapter 53, verse 7, he prophesied of the coming Messiah, Jesus, and he said this about him. He said, Jesus, foreseeing the Messiah, he said, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Peter added this in chapter 2, uh, 23 of, of the first letter that we covered a few weeks ago. He said, when he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, right? So Jesus' approach was to not fuel the situation. He, he was going like a sheep to slaughter. He knew what he had to do to redeem the hearts of men. So Peter concludes this section of the text reminding the reader that our conduct in suffering is important. So in defending the gospel, you know, he encourages us um, to do it with kindness and respect. If you're struggling to do that, then maybe try following Jesus' example of maintaining silence. Or as Abraham Lincoln once said, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. You know, sometimes the best, <laughs> best thing is just to be quiet, which is really hard for this Irish-Italian guy to do. But I think it's good advice. Maintain a clear conscience so that by virtue of our good behavior in Christ, our accusers and oppressors will be put to shame. Our good witness will have an effect on those who persecute us, those who bring trouble upon us. And if God so wills, it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And I'll close with this, uh, well, two verses. This first one here from Matthew 5, 10 through 12, where Jesus himself said these beautiful words. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. I thought last week, Mark, Mark I think it was last week's sermon, Mark brought up the sifting of Peter, right? And this was another Job-like example, right, where in, in, um, in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. In 1 Peter 3.12, a passage Mark covered last week, but he didn't cover this verse. He said, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. So we have this assurance. Okay, Satan may have access to sift us like wheat, to stir up trouble in our lives, to bring persecution upon us directly. Not that we blame every bad thing that happens in our life to Satan directly, but... There's a spiritual reality here that we can't ignore. Satan was given permission to sift Peter like wheat. And we know the result of that was ultimately to redeem Peter, to bring him back and to make him the rock that he became as, a, um, as one of the leading apostles of the early church. But I love this part here. He says, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Jesus loved Peter. 
He knew he was going to betray him. He knew he was going to lose his faith. He knew he was going to renounce him and disavow him in public right after his death. Peter was adamant, it'll never happen, Lord. It'll never happen. Jesus loved Peter, and he prayed for Peter. And that's a picture I just want to leave you with today, that no matter what you're going through, no matter what challenges you're having in life, know that you have this community to support you. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But even better than that is we have an advocate in heaven, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who's praying for us. And this is what he's praying, that our faith may not fail when we are tested and when we are tempted and when we face trials. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Peter's example. I I thank you for this letter because there's no one more qualified perhaps than Peter. There are probably lots of people qualified, but he certainly is qualified Father, to speak to this issue. And so, Lord, I I thank you that you love Peter enough, Lord, to to humble him, uh, to crush him even, Lord, to bring upon him um, uh, maybe perhaps an end to his pride or at least a a progression to where, Lord, this this strong-willed guy who said he, he would never abandon you, never leave you, Lord God, the reality was, Lord, that... That temptation is in all of our hearts, Lord. Therefore, by the grace of God, we go. Lord, without you and without your help and without the knowledge that you're in heaven praying for us, Lord God, our journey at any moment can fail. We can fail. We can fall. We can go back to being who we were before we had the eyes of our hearts open. But Lord, the word tells us differently. It says you never leave us nor forsake us. So that, Lord, even if we do fall, even if we have a Peter-like moment where we drift uh, into... Uh, just a dark period of doubt and we disavow you before men that even even if that happens, Lord God, to know that you're praying for me, that you're praying for us not to fall. Father means everything. And so, Lord, I pray for this body. I pray for all of us that, Lord, you would meet us at the point of our affliction. You would meet us at the point of, of our suffering. Father, wherever life is pressing on us, wherever we're being crushed, we're being persecuted perhaps even, Father, wherever we're being reviled, wherever we're dealing with affliction and personal crises, Lord God, that are shaking the foundation under our feet, that, Lord, we will remember that you're with us. We'll remember that you are sovereignly ruling over all circumstances. And we'll remember that, Lord God, you are praying for us not to fall, not to fail. Lord, take us as we are before you and continue your work of grace in our life, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.